Caitlin. Emily. We did a thing. A lot of people did a thing. A lot of people did a thing. Season 12, officially wrapped. It is. How do you feel? I feel great. I have slept 10 and 11 and a half hours the last couple of nights. So nice. I am still tired, but it's a it's a glow of, of exhaustion. How do I, you feel? <laughs> I uh, have not actually slept an obscene amount in a way that I'm still kind of waiting to come. But I feel that my body has not been hit by the bus that sometimes it has post-festival. And I think that's just a tribute to our incredible team and volunteers and partners that really showed up this year and uh, had a hand in everything and were phenomenal. I do agree with that. But Monday, I did feel like I was hit by a (laughs) semi-truck. That is fair. That (laughs) is fair. We did have a dance party in the storage parking lot once we loaded all of the festival supplies into storage and locked it and had an official season 12 rap dance party. You made us have a lot of dance parties I did. I did. I just felt it was needed. Yes. I mean, they were easily opted into, but there were many a dance party. I feel like Friday night at our... TV camp sing along. I may have thrown myself a large dance party and had the best time. Great. <laughs> I was not at the sing along, but I heard it was very fun. It was uh, some TV magic moments of the best, some of the best. There are way too many to count, but TV music moments and some great sing along happening. Some major crowd pleasers with our beautiful hosts, Kevin McHale and Ashley Fink. And I quite enjoyed myself. You know, it was it was a very good festival. Yes. We're back, guys. We are. And I uh, am very excited to start releasing all of the panels. So knowing over the next, I'm going to say six months or so. It's about that. That we're going to be releasing many panels via this podcast the and TV giving some fire. We'll have new releases hopefully every Friday. Is that our goal? Nope. Nope. That's not the goal. Every, every Thursday. <laughs> every Thursday. I feel like this first you know, one's coming. You know, it'll be there on Friday if you don't make it there by it Thursday. It will. It will. This first one's coming out on Friday just to kick <laughs> See, things off. And confused. then it will be every Thursday after that, right to the top of your feed if you have subscribed. Well, in a way that we are always trying to, you know, we had a bit of a postmortem today. You and I, our tradition of going for a walk and going to Magnolia Cafe and splitting You know, it's a secret order, but it's been the same order for 12 years. And I feel like the majority of the themes of what we said this year in whatever department was everything was got better. Like it was all progress. There's still things to do better always and learn and grow, but everything was progress. And I think this podcast will be a part of that in that the fact that we are releasing a new podcast one week, less than one week after the end of the festival, this release, uh, which is the WGA on strike panel is being released. It's it's the seventh day. It was on, it was originally recorded on Saturday, June 3rd, and it is being released on Friday. (laughs) What day is Friday? June 9th. (laughs) Hot second from now. So that's pretty exciting in the progress department. I will say when we uh, started putting together our content release for the summer and what order we wanted to release things in, this did feel like it would be the most timely and something we wanted to get out quickly because we're still 
very much in the middle of the strike. And there's so much to say, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Is it the middle? Is it the beginning? Oh, I, when I know. say the middle, I mean, it's not the beginning or the end. Yes. So it's somewhere in between the beginning or the end. I mean, I definitely agree. I also think it sets the tone. Um, you know, I'm going to not compliment ourselves, but a lot of things I heard leaving the festival was how great the programming was this year, which was a bit of a shock for Jen Morgan and myself as the programming department, only because of how much programming was lost, altered, changed in some way or another in the final, while the festival is going on even. Mm -hmm. And all of that is not due to the strike, but the strike was a part of that as we had to morph, pivot, ballerina twirl our way through what was allowed and how to be good partners and allies to writers. Um, so I think having this be the panel that we launched season 12 programming with also is a great start because it was beyond being something that we were very proud and honored to host and give a platform to. It also set the tone for a lot of the other conversations and it is mentioned in a lot of them in one way or another. Um, that the strike is going on and the writers that were either on or not on panels because of it. So um, I think it's good for that. And I also think it's kind of wild that timing wise, um, and I have not educated myself enough, so I won't talk about it too much, but the day after this panel, it was announced that the DGA mm -hmm. had come to a deal. And this week, supposedly it's getting ratified if it hasn't been already. And that is also a part of it. Two days later, it was announced that SAG-AFTRA had rad had strike authorization by like 97%. So it absolutely is still very top of mind and ever evolving. And that was within days of this conversation. I want, and I feel like you were, I was number one support team on this, but you really led the charge with putting this panel together and reaching out immediately. What was just for a little background, just to set the stage before we actually go into the panel. What was the first, do you remember the first move that was made the moment we realized, oh, this is going to greatly affect our programming in ways that we had absolutely not predicted? <laughs> well, I was trying to remember that a little bit. The strike was, they WGA went on strike on May 1st. Um, we had had conversations prior to the strike on if programming would be affected and we naively thought it really wouldn't be. True. And that was based on previous strikes and conversations that were being had. And so we we're basing it on that. This one gets to be different. The strike is different than the one that came before it. And in fact, the panel kind of talks about the difference between the 2007 strike, which is the last major one in memory um, and this one and, and why it is tonally and emotionally and physically different. Um, but the strike happened the first, I would say it was eerily quiet for a couple of days. Like we kind of were braced for impact from panelists or partners saying we're not coming or asking us questions. My reference point, because it was the most recent one, this felt a lot like COVID um, in the, we don't know what this means, but it means something and what are we allowed to do? And so for a few days, we just waited. Um, I actually think in our reference point, the pitch competition was the first thing we were concerned about. And we talked to strike compliance at the WGA to, to see if that was allowed and found the way to, funny enough, we thought for sure that was the one that was going away. <laughs> no, and it I was, was the prepared. one that did not need to go away. But I just looked it up. I emailed Chris Kaiser on May 7th. 
So within and Chris Kaiser being Chris Kaiser is co-chair of the negotiating committee um, and a writer on the WGA. And we knew him and we, yeah. And we had his email. Um, we, he came to the second festival for the party of five reunion. And so we knew him and I knew he was on the negotiating committee, but I also had known, um, through another panelist that she had been talking to him about sort of what was allowed and what wasn't. And, you know, I kind of just, sometimes we just take swings and I, (laughs) I had emailed with him in the past and I had his personal email and I emailed him on Sunday, May 7th. And he emailed me back within an hour and told me to call him on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday morning. So within a week of the strike and just asked him, what can we do during those couple of days before that it had been brought up. I had asked strike compliance, Glenn Mazzara who's on our, on our advisory board. I was just trying to be more <laughs> official, but he's on our advisory board and he was on the strike compliance committee. It's not just him, but we were using him as a sounding board and he was going back to various members of the committee and coming back to us with answers. And I asked if we thought we could do a strike panel and he kind of said that's feel free to ask Chris kind of a thing while also talking to Bo Williman, who was also is also on our advisory board and was confirmed to come on a panel with Tony Gilroy for Andor, obviously that wasn't happening. So kind of in the, this little triangle of conversations with Glenn Bow and eventually Chris, just being as open as possible, saying we want to be helpful. We want to be a platform. What is allowed? Can we do a strike panel? Um, they asked us a bunch of questions about who we were and in what capacity we would put this on. Mm-hmm. I promised them there would not be a struck company logo behind them. There was not. And that came back with that was something that we would be allowed to do. And they helped us put together who should be on it while also helping guide us and other WGA members to what was allowed for writers to attend the festival because writers being at the festival was very, very important to us. And so the pivot we made there was broad topics, craft panels, writers talking about writing and really moved a lot of our writers who weren't on this panel to very craft and writing conversations, which was extremely important to us. And some of those will be released later. Yeah. I feel like one of the things that we heard a lot was how important it would be for writers to be together. They're obviously all picketing together, but that community and really celebrating writers and their craft and how important they are to the making of all of our favorite TV shows is really being able to highlight that and that that was just as important as them taking a stand is also showing how much we need them and having a place for them to come together in celebration of who they are and what they do and feel that appreciation. And it felt very empowering for us to still have that platform and give that place for writers to be able to do that. Absolutely. And then, yeah, through Chris and Bo's suggestions, really, because we did work with WGA East and West, um, it became important for this panel to have different writers represented. Um, So we have from, you know, network to prestige, from scripted to comedy late Mm -hmm. night, which is a big negotiating point. And uh, Greg Uwinski, who represents the comedy late night side, is also on the negotiating committee, which was also important. So the panel was made up of different types of writers representing different subsects of the WGA. It's, as I mentioned, Greg Owinski, Zoanne Clack, who has been on Grey's Anatomy for a very long time, but is a very seasoned writer, Julie Pleck, who is on our advisory board as well um, and has been both a showrunner and producer and writer, 
uh, staff writer, and then is both moderated slash panelist uh, by Bo Williman. Yeah. So it it represents East and West. It represents negotiating committee. It represents different types of writing. And that was really important to the, the makeup of the panel. I feel like the coolest thing that I think people didn't understand when I say people, the industry, and honestly, even Bo and the panelist, as much as I feel like they should have been, having come to the festival a lot, that the audience, which was a very packed house, was made up, obviously, of a lot of industry members that are at the festival that want to hear what they're going to say and want to know the ins and outs of everything that's happening. But so many attendees, our festival is made up of so many attendees that are just pure TV fans and just love TV and want to learn about it and want to know all the ins and outs. And they were there mainly because... (laughs) They very much believe in the writers and want to support them, but don't actually understand what the writers are fighting for and don't understand why this is even happening to begin with. And I heard from so many people that were in the audience how educated they now feel to go back into their normal everyday lives and be able to talk about why the writers are striking, why it's important, not just for entertainment, but for the world in general, and also were given action items at the end of this of what can you do yeah. going to your own lives? I can say for sure Bo knew that. Um, and, and it was important. Consumers, if we want to call them that, they are fans, they are mm-hmm. viewers, but they are consumers who are subscribers to Netflix and all of all the different companies that make up the AMPTP. Yes. <laughs> nice job. I feel I like watching the panelists even struggle with that a little bit. You could see them walking through yeah. it in their heads. AMPTP. Like, what are the letters? The companies that make up the AMPTP, the consumers that were in our audience are consumers of those companies. And it is very important during a labor strike, during something that is is a movement to have people understand and be willing to take action and be willing to educate the others in their lives and be able to be loud and be heard, that's the way labor Mm -hmm. disputes. And I think that that's the part that it keeps coming back to me. I mean, we are a television festival. This is about entertainment. This is very much about TV writers, but the United States, America specifically, is a very storied history with labor unions and um, the rights of workers. And this is bigger than entertainment in a lot of ways because as our country grows and changes politically, socially, culturally. The success of unions and the everyday worker, which is what writers are, the majority of them, are not the most rich, powerful people. They these are it's why TV is being talked about actually more than film, is staff writers make up a lot of this. It's it's day jobs. And so the success of a labor union, if that's something that you believe in, uh, is bigger than entertainment and television and, and it is has happened before. I heard I heard Greg say for for our generation, his generation is my generation, our introduction to labor unions was not Sally Field and Norma Ray. It was newsies. <laughs> and Disney yep. taught us about labor unions with newsies. <laughs> and that is why it, it's it's not just about TV and entertainment. It it is about rights of workers and it's a it's a labor dispute they shed light on that and help people who aren't in the industry understand the basic things being fought for and what's at stake, what's on the line. Well, I feel like this panel starts and ends in a very cool way that did not see coming and was so excited to be in the audience for. 
which you will hear in just I, a minute. I do. I do. You li- you've, you've listened to the recording. Does it come across in the recording? Yes. Okay, great. Yes, it does. <laughs> I think it does. Great. Um, if not, I'll just say just that imagine. Myself, myself and some others around me definitely got teary-eyed with the, the impact of the beginning, um, which I will credit to writers and the drama. I know. They definitely <laughs> brought it. Bo brought it. And I loved every second of it. Uh, so with that... Um, Please listen and learn from WJ on Strike with Julie Pleck, Zoanne Clack, Greg Owinsky, and Bo Willeman. Hello, everyone. Hi, guys. Hey, y'all. My name is Emily Gibson. This is Caitlin McFarland. We are the co-founders of ATX TV. I just say it so that y'all do that. It makes me feel really good. Um... Day three, TV camp. Everyone doing okay? Y'all, there's a lot of really positive, wonderful energy in here, and I love it. Warm embrace, literally outside and in this room. Um, Quick, just make sure, housekeeping, that you have all downloaded the app, that you are refreshing it, making sure it's up to date. We're a live event. Changes happen. We roll with them. So, um, but lots of great programming still to come this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, all day. So hope that you are enjoying yourselves and keeping yourselves hydrated and lots of nutrition in your bodies to keep going. Still got time, guys. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Kate to introduce the panel. Uh, We'll keep this very short so you have as much time with them as possible. But the background on this is we built this festival on writers. They're the rock stars heartbeat of this festival. When the strike happened, we really did ask, you know, what we were allowed to do and how we could support them and what kind of platform we could give. And we are just so thrilled and honestly honored to be able to have this conversation here with with these guests. So we're going to bring up your moderator, Bo Williman, ATX TV advisory board member, former WGA East Council member and president. Hi, everyone. This is a great turnout. Thanks for making it out today. Um, I, I, I'm going to introduce our other panelists, and then we'll, we'll dive right into things. Uh, so we've got Greg Awinski, uh, who is a uh, current uh, council member and on the negotiating committee. Uh, Greg, Greg also has written for The Late Show with uh, Stephen Colbert for uh uh, last week tonight, John Oliver. He's won a couple anim- Emmys. He's a pretty talented guy uh, when he's not running strikes. We have Zoanne Clack, who... Um, she has served uh, on negotiating committee before uh, and also been uh, uh, served as a WGA West board member and brought you literally hundreds of episodes of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> And finally, Julie Pleck, who is a standard here at ATX. Julie has made more television than all of us combined. Um, You know, among other things, The Vampire Diaries, which I'm sure there's many fans here. Um, So we're going to dive in in a moment here. But first, I'd like to ask, uh, how many of you are in a union? Raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. Yeah, all right, great, terrific. Well, for those of you who aren't, I want to give you a, a sense of what it feels like to be in a union. So it's a little audience participation here for a moment. Um, ma'am, I would like you to, you, or that's fine, yeah. 
I want I want you just to just to clap. Just one person. Okay, that's the sound of one person clapping, right? Okay. Now, ma'am, keep going. You're gonna keep going. You started off. You're the first member of the union. Now, ma'am, will you join? Natcher. Okay, third person here. Okay, the whole first row. Match each other. Second row, join in. Third row. Fourth row. Fifth row. First half. The whole theater. That's what it feels like to be in a union. We are, we have an agenda. We're pro-labor, we're pro-worker, we're pro-union. So that's what you're going to hear from us tonight. <laughs> Let's get things started here. Greg, tell us how we got here, what's at stake, and where we're at now. Yeah, um, the, uh, thank you everyone for being here. Um, I'm on the negotiating committee, which is a 17-person team of writers from the East and the West across all the different things we write. That That's film and episodic television and late night and soap operas and game shows and everything that we cover as a team along with the staff in East and West uh, to build a plan for what our negotiations are every three years and then to go in and to try to negotiate for that plan. So we started months and months ago building a plan based on where writers are at and what we need uh, in our next contract. And that led to uh, six weeks of negotiation with the Association of Motion, Tele and Television, Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP, in a mall in Sherman Oaks, California. There's a very big conference room. This is very real. It's weird. There's a Buffalo Wild Wings a couple stops down if you get stressed. Uh, and we, we went there to sit down face to face and to say, here are the issues that writers have. And you may or may not have seen uh, writers that you know talking about it online or what we've put online as a guild. But essentially, we were at a place where our argument was that the, the streaming model of television uh, that was so appealing lots of years ago because they said, well, you lose some labor protections, but you gain a big check up front, that that system had not worked and that it was leading to not only television not being, the people making television not being able to execute their vision, but also creating an unsustainable system that was eliminating the creation of new and experienced showrunners that was leaving us with shows that were you know, canceled uh, mid-run and that was also destroying writer pay. Because again, we have to live in New York or Los Angeles, which are not cheap. Uh, and so in doing that, I grew up in Arizona, so I've seen what realistic rent looks like, and then I've also seen New York and LA rent, uh, and maybe Austin rent. <laughs> And, uh, and so having to do that uh, in a situation where now you can be someone who writes on a hit television show and makes $80,000 a year and has to be on food stamps, uh, even though your show is being nominated for awards that the studio is happy to take credit for. So we came and presented our argument for solutions to that system. One of the things I'm very proud about with the Writers Guild is that we are member-based and member-led. So we did not focus group. We did not go in and ask a management company what we should be asking for. We asked our members, 11,000 members, and we got back 7,000 surveys that talked about that their pay had been destroyed, that screenwriters had been asked to do rewrite after rewrite of free work when they weren't being paid for a rewrite uh, because it was just not quite good enough for months and months and months with the back half of their payment hanging over their head 
that, you know, that many rooms had changed shows, that we had taken writers out of production, that late night writers had no protections in streaming television, not even a minimum wage. And we brought these arguments to the studios and presented our solutions. And uh, I had gone in with the expectation that it would be a very difficult negotiation and that we would be in a situation where we, we would be presented with a deal that was not great, but hard to say no to. And that is not what happened. Uh, we did six weeks of negotiations, and at the end of it, um, this is, I'm not saying anything that the guilt has not already said, uh, that uh, in that last couple days of negotiations, we were still incredibly far apart. Uh, and we were offered things that we published online. The night that the strike was called, we put out where we were. Met half of the things that we talked about, they did not respond to. And for many of the things like the screenwriter problem, they said they were willing to meet with us to explain why we were incorrect. They offered a meeting with screenwriters to explain how free work does not happen. They, instead of bringing writers onto set, they offered, to, uh, they offered to create a free unpaid internship in which you could bring a writer on set after they'd been writing, now they're there for free, and they could shadow you as a showrunner to learn the craft of showrunning. These were their last and best offers. So that's why we're in a strike. Can you, can you put in perspective the amount of money we're talking about in terms of their profits and what we're asking for? Yeah, we're talking about in total the $400, $450 million across all seven companies for, to solve this. It has already cost almost a billion dollars, the delays, production shutdowns, and damage of the strike. So we are already way past what it would have cost to give us the deal. In perspective, so, you know, like there are companies for whom their share of it is 10 or 15 or $17 million, which is what their exec makes in a month uh, in terms of paying all of the people who start with nothing and give them the products that are worth these billions of dollars. Profits of tens of billions of dollars, and you're talking about half a million dollars across the industry. Right. So 450 million sounds like a lot, but when you put in perspective uh, of an industry that's making many billions of dollars, are, if we got everything we asked for, we're looking at less than two percent of their yearly revenues, right? That's of their profits. That's not off like money before. That's off the the profit they're making after spending. It, it would be two percent. And, and again, to put in perspective, like there are lots of people who need to get paid, actors and directors, IATSE, Teamsters, these people, but writers start with something blank and then they give you a show like The Office that will be quoted for the rest of time and used in memes and culturally is important and you have the minions showing up at a theme park, you know, trying to get you to buy a smoothie. All of these ideas came from a writer's brain. That is worth at least 2% and I would argue much more than that. And what... And So, Anne, will you talk a little bit about the age of streaming now? I mean, you know, you, you've been at the center of network television for quite some time now, and those rooms are among the most difficult because you have to create over 20 episodes a season. Writers' rooms are necessary in order just for the volume, and then to do it at quality, like, requires, a, you know, a, a superhuman amount of work. And um, things have changed a lot since you started out. Um, can you talk, I mean, writers' rooms are at the center of these negotiations. Keeping writers' rooms alive and central to the creative process and to the business. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience in terms of how you see, you've seen things change? Yeah, I, um, as Bo said, I've given you hundreds of episodes of Grey's Anatomy. And part <laughs> of that reason is because I am super afraid to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, network TV is kind of the, you know, people don't believe that it's as, like, 
worthy or, you know, like prize winning, which it isn't, by the way, we haven't heard of a prize in many, many years, but (laughs) we don't do the award thing, but we do the stability thing. And um, just the fact that you could go out and I could have my 2022 episodes of network TV and go out to streaming and maybe get a six episode order and then not get a job again for two years frightens me to the core of my soul. Um, I've known a lot of people who, you know, worked for two years on a six or eight episode um, season, got a lot of awards, got a lot of accolades. But when you really look down at it, you know, maybe they've made $80,000, $100,000 over the course of these two years and done a lot of free work, a lot of free production, a lot of free editing because their rooms go away. Like the writers literally go away and the showrunner and maybe one other person is responsible for doing all the production, doing all of the the filming, being on set. So all of these other writers have been paid their minimal fees for the amount of time that they're, the amount of weeks that they are bargained for, and then they're gone. So they don't learn the business, they don't see what see the fruits of their labor. Any rewrites have to be the showrunner or this other person that they've kept. Um, I do have a friend who just did. There's a writing team that just did A Small Light, which is, you should watch it if you haven't. Um, and when they first went in, the, the network was like, so you guys are going to be writing alone, right? And they were like, no, we're going to have a writer's room. So it's expected now that people just come in and just write all of their episodes with, one, with the creators, um, which is also just, you know, something that needs to be fought for. And this is kind of why we're asking for the, the minimum amount of people in the rooms, because A, for... Like one big reason, I think, is that if we don't have enough people investing into our healthcare system and to our pension plan, that's going to go away. Like we need to have people working to buy into that so that we can keep that flush for our future. And the other reason is just to have people learn and have people see the fruits of their labor and to not just be kind of the, you know, one-off workers. What do they call those? The... Gig workers. Gig workers. Um, Which is fine if that's what you want to do. But I think most of us went into this for a career. Um, So in order to be sustainable and to have a career and to be able to move up the ladder, you have to be in a writer's room. You have to be on set. You have to learn these things. You have to learn to edit. Um, You have to learn all of it in order to get to the next stage and to be a showrunner that can do the job. And there are lots of showrunners who, you know, there's also this culture of, you know, new, very young people coming in and not being in the writer's room and not being on shows and being made showrunners. Sometimes that works out fine, but sometimes they need a lot of, not a lot of help. And it's also just very, like, degrading to yourself if you have now been handed this million-dollar industry to manage, not just to write for and create, but to manage and you don't have the skills. Like, you want to be able to have showrunners who have the knowledge, who have the um, dedication. I mean, everyone has the dedication. But, you know, just to know what they're doing and to feel elated by it and not be pushed down. So, you know, in order to just, like, have a life and not be depressed all the time, (laughs) it's nice to have that baseline knowledge, which is not happening in the present um, way of doing things. 
And, and Zoanna, it used to be that all, almost all television was network television. And so uh, a season was a gig for at least a year um, where you might be in a writer's room 40 or even 50 weeks a year. Um, and I imagine on some shows it still is that case because of the volume. But there's a lot of shows now where there's many rooms, as you were mentioning, where you know it might only be a few weeks um, or you're writing your episode uh, and that's it, you're done. So like, uh, you know, network television and that model, which actually could sustain careers, growth, apprenticeship and all that stuff is only a fraction of the television that's being made right now. A very small fraction. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of people now are trying to get back to network TV as far as like writers. Um, I've interviewed a lot of writers lately who are just like, please just get me back. <laughs> um, because it's stable and because you learn and because you know you have that camaraderie, which you do not get at all in a mini room or a very short season of a room. And mini rooms, oh my God, I can't even with <laughs> the mini rooms. It's like the network or the executives want to not do their jobs, basically. They're like, I don't know, we think this show may be good. Why don't you guys write it and figure it out and then we'll see if we're gonna green light it. Like in the past, it was like executives stood by what they thought was good, they pushed for it and they became advocates of it. And if it didn't work, it didn't work, but they pushed. And now it's, you know, the mini rooms yeah, maybe not. And then if, if it does go, then they can just pull it. You know, you can, you can also film an entire season of things and then they're just like, yeah, we're not going to air it. Like, this is not how it's supposed to go. Um, and just, you know, trying to create a career again, um, this is not very sustainable for that to happen. Um, so the WGA has been on strike, I think, seven times over the last 90 years. Uh, it's one of it's the most militant of all the entertainment unions and guilds. Um, you know, put things in perspective. In 1960, there was a six-month strike to get basic things like healthcare, pension, and residuals. Um, and uh, and the last major strike that we had was in 2007, uh, which was mostly over new media to have jurisdiction over streaming. Julie, um, you were already a showrunner at that point, uh, and um, that was a pretty intense 100-day strike. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences during that strike and how that strike is different than the one that we're currently in? There's, there's a lot that's so different, um, and I can try to break it down into like three, three categories. Um, one is, back then, we were nervous about what was ahead. We were concerned about what we saw coming down the pipeline, but it was an in, there was an intangibility to that concern. It turned out to be quite prescient and ultimately catastrophically accurate, <laughs> um, but it was concern. And so you were taking to the lines to fight for something down the line that you really thought would be important, uh, but it, there, was a, um, there was a nebulous, like ephemeral quality to it, right? Now we're mad. We're just mad. And, you know, I, I want to qualify this and say that, like, I've been lucky in my own career to reap a lot of the benefits of a successful career. So when I talk, I want to make it clear I'm talking for, on behalf or in the spirit of the people who struck in the past to get us the benefits that we have today, the people who are striking today to just hold on to their own livelihood, and the people that we're striking for, which are the me's and the we's of the next generations. So I just wanted to sort of say that out loud. But we're mad. 
Um, I have friends who worked 15 years straight who don't have jobs right now, and those that are taking the jobs are taking the jobs at 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 percent less pay than they are used to making after a 15 to 20 year career. Um, the sort of lack of care for the artists and the content creators of this business has reached a breaking point, not just in the Writers Guild, but in all labor guilds. Um, so we now, whereas before we didn't have support of fellow unions and fellow guilds necessarily, it was like, oh, there go the writers out on strike again, woohoo. Now there's this moment in time where everyone is as mad as we are. Um, we are, uh, able to have this community of raw anger that is fueling the solidarity on the picket lines because there is a clear enemy in this and it's not us. Um, the, uh, the next thing, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, the second thing is, uh, God bless them. The last gasp of millennials and the first gasp of Gen Z because this is a community of folks who sort of have seen the shit hit them again and again. You were saying this last night. You said it so eloquently, Greg. It's like it started with, you know, perhaps 9-11 uh, and, and the fallout of that and war. And then it was the housing collapse and the financial collapse. And then it was sort of 2016 and people taking to the streets in protest. And then it was 2020 and people taking to the streets in protest. And then it was COVID and people taking to the streets in protest. Everything in this new generation is about taking the fight to the streets. And that's a really good thing for us as striking workers right now is there is an energy and enthusiasm of activism that this community and this generation is just like that's how they're wired. That's how they live and breathe. And that is a very important key to this because striking is not fun. You have no job. It's hot. You have to walk for a lot of hours. These are writers. You know, we don't do that. <laughs> We don't do that. Um, and so to have that like raw energy of, of true union power is not something that you get every cycle in this guild. You know, you don't always have people that are like, yeah, you know, solidarity. Most times people are like, oh, okay, where do you want me to go? And oh, do I have to? And okay, oh, fine. So that's the good, right? We're mad and we have a spirit of of like grassroots revolution that is really powerful. And we throw social media into that and it's a game changer. And I'm not entirely sure that the bosses sort of could have predicted this. Um, I'm sure they're not, they're a little bit nervous about it, I would think, but it's nice to see. But the third thing is the thing that's sort of not so great, uh, that's different between the two eras, is that back in 2007, the town was still there was this sense that it was still run by people who cared about artists. And the people who were the big decision makers, they weren't necessarily the top, always the top of the corporate food chain, or they weren't always necessarily like the tech people who are just into the widgets and the numbers and the algorithms. There were people in that mix who really truly believed in the, hey kid, let's go make a picture, you know? Let's go tell stories. Let's make art. And while they had to like manage a bottom line and they had to understand, you know, that hard decisions had to be made, they did also truly believe in the spirit of art and creating art and that there was money to be made for all in success. 
And I think that's all but gone. And that's not good for the people, you know, that are supporters of this union and, and the members of this union. It's not good because when you put it in the perspective of the people that need to make the compassionate decision to compassionately reward artists for a job well done, there is no room for compassion at that level of corporate everything. And I think that will make this battle all that much more difficult, uh, which is why, you know, when we talk about being in it for the long haul, we are, we have to be in it for the long haul because there isn't a room full of benevolence just holding out to be the least amount of benevolent that they can, but still benevolent. There's a room full of, of folks, I think, who would like to see union labor go away. I think they would like to see um, more, you know, just streamlined, smaller amount of jobs, smaller amount of pay, and to not have to share the success of those spoils necessarily if they don't have to. And that, I think, is what is our biggest hill to climb is just the the people in charge at the highest levels. And by the way, I don't know who they are. Like, do you? <laughs> well, I mean, they, they were not at the negotiations. Yeah. So we were negotiating with labor lawyers and business affairs, not yeah. with the heads of studios or anyone like that, which is the same people the directors are talking to and that actors will talk to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like to think of like Donna Langley and Susan Rovner and Perlina Ibokwe. If all of them were in a room making these decisions, I like to think that this would be a much easier conversation. I don't know who's at the it's, top. It's very weird. Like, Zoanne, you and I were on negotiating committee at the same time for 2017. Can you describe what that room is like? Like the sort of kabuki theater and who you're sitting across you from? the... Uh... The one with the conference table in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two sides. <laughs> There's two sides that are like this and like this. And we're all just like looking at all the lawyers across from us with all the little, all their laptops. Like our negotiating committee is actually like writers, like members of the guild. Yeah. And then uh, sitting across from you is a bunch of lawyers with laptops, yeah. right? And Carol Lombardini. But it's not and like Carol. David La- Zaslav's not there. He's, he's getting picketed during BU commencement speeches, yeah. right? You know, so. <laughs> I, I do want to. I want to speak to the exec of it all because I think that that is a huge part of this. Which is, um, there's no mythical writer world where every exec is like, "I just love art so much. Whatever it costs, go do your dream." <laughs> like no one is. This is a business. But it's cool if the person running a hamburger stand thinks burgers taste good and likes them. <laughs> like. And there is no evidence that that is true. And, and so I think there's a, one of the problems in this streaming tech era is that you don't have people, you know, you've got the mini room system, which again, if you don't know is, why don't I just put six writers, or I mean, six people in a room for six weeks and they'll come up with that little thing called all the characters, all the storylines, the whole idea of what the show is and where it happens. And then I'll just, once I have that, I can just go freelance scripts out. Because to green light a pilot, have the pilot shot and stand behind it requires artistic voice and taste and belief. And there are a lot of middle executives and people closer to the writers that are not able to execute that, that do believe in that, that are speaking out in, or at least speaking out behind the scenes in favor of the writers. But at the top, you have a group of people who don't know. And that's why you have, this is why the writer's room thing is so important. Because if you come in from on high and you're like, all I care about is quarterly profit for shareholders, you go, well, what if the whole NBA team, all my analogies are NBA, what, what if we just had like two all-stars and they did the whole game? And you go, well, you need like 11 other people so they don't die. But they go, but we, do we? 
Because what if we just have LeBron and AD and then they just, ha- they're both good. So they'll just have the ball. They can pass to each other. And everyone else is going, what is happening? And that's what's happening with staff size is they're going, well, what if these two all-star writers just write all the episodes? And here's the thing. If you're a really important white dude, you can go, yeah, whatever, or no, I want six writers. If you're a lower level or mid-level writer or a woman or person of color or a woman of color and you go, actually, I need six writers, they'll just say, no, because the white guy didn't need them, so you don't need them. And that is why we are fighting to the death for room size. It's not about giving people jobs where they aren't needed or forcing them onto someone's vision. It's that we need that safeguard because otherwise they're going to have two basketball players playing to death. Speaking, speaking of that disdain for the creative process, uh, we've got a number of questions here about AI, and that wasn't even on the pattern of demands initially, but then ChatGPT came along and it quickly sort of rose up the ranks of things that we're taking very seriously. Um, so, you know, obviously it, this doesn't affect just our industry. Any job most of you are doing will be impacted by AI in some form or another in the months or years to come. Uh, what can you tell us what the response was about AI, like the like the actual quote? Well, the the for a long time, and then the thing about AI is again, a member led union. At every meeting we were at, people writers were coming saying, "You got to talk about this," and it kept moving up and became a core part. And we came to the AMPTP and said, "We got to talk about it." Our position is that it's not going to be used as source material. It's not going to be something we rewrite, and our writing doesn't feed into this plagiarism machine. And they said nothing until at the very end they said, uh, we don't want to limit ourselves on something we could take advantage of later. Which is like you saying, hey, Bo, why do you have that can of gasoline? And he's like, I might need it. <laughs> okay, that, I'm not less worried. <laughs> And I think you're seeing that across the industries. And, and I am someone, I believe that, that executives are very susceptible to vaporware and to some tech guy coming in going, AI is actually going to be able to fly us to the moon. And it doesn't really need to be because like crypto, if I can just get all your money, then it doesn't matter if it doesn't pan out in the end as long as I avoid the SEC. So <laughs> there is some element of AI that is going to be people promising the moon and delivering a mountain. And but but it doesn't matter. And that's the real issue here is what you're seeing with the studios is what if it doesn't matter that it's good? Again, if I do not care about TV, I care about, I love television. I am a weirdo who loves television. Many of you are as well. I watch, <laughs> I'm the person who watches SNL every night and is on a text thread with other late night writers being like, that camera move was late. What happened here? Oh my gosh, they're 30 seconds long. Um, but, but if you don't love TV, if you say things like some executives at streaming companies have said where I don't believe in quality, uh, I, if you're saying those things, does it matter if an AI movie sucks and that the AI directing bot is doing really bad shots and that the AI actors are kind of glitching out? Does it matter if it keeps people from canceling a subscription? Maybe it doesn't to them. So the threat of us being replaced is not that they're ever going to match our quality. It's going to be that our bosses don't care. And so that's why we're going to fight for it. And that's why it's an existential thing. I think, I hope that SAG fights really hard for it. I hope the DGA does as well. But for us, it's not something that we're willing to budge on. Yeah, it's, I was talking to somebody because AI has sort of become the face, the, like AI and Netflix, unfortunately, but AI uh, has become the, the face of the villain of this strike for most, many of the unions and certainly us. And 
we were talking just about the state of the business in general and specifically the conversation was about the state of showrunners and sort of stripping a power and success away from showrunners and putting them in a situation where they don't feel like they have any autonomy, authority or confidence uh, or as Zoanna is saying, the experience to even be doing their job. And a writer I was talking to, and I'd love to credit her, but I can't remember her, her full name, <laughs> was said, yeah, you know, we have been getting slowly dehumanized for so long in the last, you know, post-streaming, uh, the launch of the streaming era. We've been getting so slowly dehumanized that no wonder we're looking at the threat of a robot being like our biggest villain here. And I thought that was really profound because that's really what it is. We're all, nobody knows what AI is, is going to do other than sing, achieve singularity and murder us all in our sleep. But <laughs> I, I have compassion for the powers that be that are like, we don't even know what this means. Why would we cement rules in it? But there is a little bit of a fool me once, fool me twice thing happening because we got heavily gaslit in 2007. What are you fighting for? Something, some streaming. And the small gains that we got out of the 2007 strike got us, as Greg was saying, jurisdiction over new media, but at less price, less residual structure, smaller minimums, smaller script fees, because they were so new. Cut to now 15 years later, they are the behemoths of this industry, they are all getting our work for half price. And that's us having won gains in 2007. So to me, AI is new media. I don't understand it. I don't know where it's going, but it seems really important. And if we don't get something codified in language that a human being needs to do our jobs, we will never get that language and we will never have any protections. And I think that's what other unions are starting to understand as well. So it is truly the clarion call. It is the mockingjay of, of this strike. The mockingjay. A writer wrote that. And didn't they say something about having a meeting about that too? Yes. Yeah, the, the proposal that is to all the unions on AI is that we will do a, an annual meeting to discuss the state of AI. So that, which I think is not uh, serious or good. But um, it, so, yes, they technically didn't say nothing. They said we were willing, willing to meet months, once a year. What, what's interesting, too, is that I was actually listening to this NPR um, interview with the creator of AI who was like, you guys have got to think about what AI. <laughs> like, he was afraid of AI. But AMTP is like, eh. I'm like, would you listen to the yeah. person who he's, actually he's the Al Gore, it? the Al Gore of AI. Yes. You know, <laughs> the sky is falling. I swear, and, and it, it is. And they really haven't thought through because even the 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 fact that look, what an AI is is a computer that takes other people's work and then puts similar things together to match keywords. So it's not thinking, it's not intelligence, not that. It's about what can I stick next to each other. If I own a global IP, I should be terrified of that because everyone across the internet is going to be taking all my IP and using it to make their little thing. And my lawyers are going to hunt down every single independent film and short and website to make sure that in their computer they weren't stealing half of Snow White or something. So it, it's, it's amazing to us that not just that they help writers with uh, fighting AI or controlling AI, but studios should be doing it from their own financial benefit. 
I just asked ChatGPT why the Writers Guild was on strike, and the answer makes it clear that they're in bed with management. <laughs> I'm sorry, but as an AI language model, I don't have access to real-time news or current events beyond my September 2021 knowledge cutoff. Therefore, I cannot provide information on the specific reasons behind a potential Writers Guild strike, as it may be based on events that have occurred after my knowledge cutoff date. I recommend referring to reliable news sources or contacting the relevant Writers Guild for the most up-to-date and accurate information on any ongoing strikes or labor disputes. Well, luckily, you're, you're here uh, referring to reliable news from the Writers Guild itself. So, yeah. At least they refer you to the Writers Guild. Yes, that's true. It said, it said to the relevant Writers Guild. Said, Please call said, Carol like, Lombardini and yeah. ask her. What... Please call Carol. <laughs> um, so we have a question here uh, about how can emerging writers navigate this time other than picketing in solidarity. And, and I think we can expand that to how can TV fans, um, you know, uh, uh, contribute. Um, but let's start with emerging writers. Zoanne, you've, you've worked with a ton of writers over the years. So you've seen people all levels of their careers. And I'm sure some of them were freaked out about a potential strike because, you know, big, big myth is that, you know, people that work in Hollywood, anyone that works in Hollywood is like super rich. And most writers are living, uh, especially late night people, um, a squarely middle class and sometimes hand to mouth existence, um, as, as you alluded to before. Um, but I mean, in terms of people that are uh, early on in their career, um, you know, what, what should they be thinking about in terms of what they can do, but also what it means to be part of a union in a community um, and what the Guild has meant to you during your career in that sense of community? Well, I have recently taken over Station 19, which is Grey's Anatomy's sister show. And, <laughs> and our staff is very low-level low central. There's, um, like, producer down is, like, half of our staff. And they are all in it. It's kind of like what you were saying with the different generations. But, you know, they understand that this is going to affect their bottom line. They understand that, you know, they're going to be kind of hurting for a little while. Um, but the greater good, the, the future of what this stands for is so in their minds and so um, powerful to where they're going to be and how their career is going to go in the future that they are 100% behind it. And basically, it's just having that solidarity, walking those lines. <laughs> I mean, I guess you guys wouldn't be there to walk the lines, but to, you know, offer any support that we can. And then hopefully SAG and DGA will be behind us also. I, I feel like, I feel like, if we had DGA and SAG also go out, which I'm not saying that they will, this thing could be over. Yeah, I mean, the DGA is not typically been a striking union. SAG has gone on strike before, and it's by far the biggest of the unions. Um, but there's a lot more militancy in both of those unions now, and especially IATSE, which is a, a craft trade union within uh, the entertainment industry, uh, and the Teamsters. Um, they have not been crossing picket lines, which means that unlike 2007, uh, you know, when we have picketers show up at productions, a lot of times they get shut down um, because those people won't cross the line. It's a reminder that, like, if you don't have people to drive the cars and deliver stuff and people, and you don't have people to build sets or prop masters or set decorators, all of the hundreds of workers that it takes to actually make an episode of television um, or a movie, then it doesn't happen. You know, so that's sort of the interunion solidarity and realizing, yeah, we do create something from nothing, but then all of those people bring it into a reality 
um, and it takes hundreds of people to do that. When we actually team up together, we can cost the companies billions of dollars. Um, and that's real power. And that's one of the differences, too, between uh, the 2007, because we weren't all, our contracts weren't all up at the same time, which they are now. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, general advice for emerging writers, if you're pre-WGA, which is what we like to call it, because we hope you'll all end up getting that gig that gets your union card for you, um, act as though you are in the WGA, you know, now. Um, now, that's tough, because you might have producers or people that, you know, there's something you want to pursue, uh, and you, 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 you're like, I'm finally getting a leg up, but um, you will be part of this union one day, if you've got the determination and talent, um, and and you can begin now being part of this community and being in support. Also, for those of you that have a dollar or two to spare, um, we've been raising money as a guild for something called the Entertainment Community Fund, um, which is, I believe it's entertainmentcommunity.org. Uh, and what that fund does is it helps people not only within the Writers Guild, but also our, our sibling unions who are under enormous financial distress because of the union. It, it offers grants and loans to help those people through tough times. Um, and so if you have even a, you know, a dollar or two to spare, um, that's a great thing to do. And, and you're, you're not helping out people like us. Um, you're helping out people that are starting out or have been stuck at a sort of low-level, low-paying part of their career for years and, like, can't pay rent, you know? Um, so those are the people that you'd be helping if you are doing that. Julie, did you want to weigh in in terms of, like, emerging writers and people that are starting out in their career and what a strike means to them and also what the Guild has meant to you? you know? Yeah, well, oh, my goodness. I mean, the Guild... You can have any opinion you want about labor unions and the labor movement, and those opinions are very fluid over generations. And to me, what my guild most importantly represents is health insurance, the ability to be protected with benefits. Um, They're so hard to get in the real world. They are so expensive to pay for, and they don't give you much protection unless you have the power of a union providing you with that protection. And everything else to me is additional cherries on top of that. The community, the minimums, the, you know, the outreach, the, you know, all of that. But for me, fundamentally, it's in this country right now, healthcare is so hard to, good healthcare is so hard to come by and so hard to keep. And I will be forever grateful that I am part of uh, a union that protects me in that way. Yeah, and Zoan, you and I, it went down to the last minute in 2017 where we had to fight for years and finally got it because we were willing to strike to get, like, bare minimum parental leave. Right. You know? But that's a real thing that affects people's lives that we were able to get because we were willing to withhold our labor. Right? And so that there are people that are able to spend time with their infant children now and still get paid for at least a time um, that, that for almost 100 years before that was not possible. So these, these, these actions do actually benefit people in very real ways, you know? I wanted... Uh, we had a nice conversation last night over several cocktails, <laughs> and, uh, and Greg was talking about um, late-night contracts, and I wanted to ask you to kind of go through that again. 
and how you feel about if you have to go home at the end of this. Oh, yeah. Can you actually do, the, can you do, this is almost going to be impossible. Can you do the two-minute version? Because Julie and I were, like, captivated by this, of what, like, a typical day for a late-night writer oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> like, so good. the two-minute from, like, 8.30 a.m. to, like, and then, like, go also go into then... Yeah, how you get paid and and the truly offensive day rate proposal. Um, So late night television, um, I've worked on five day a week and once a week uh, shows. I'm going to talk about the five day a week shows, the more traditional, the the strip shows is what you call it when it's once a week. Um, And those shows are are a real grind. Like soap operas, you make like 250 of them a year. I mean, soap operas sometimes make 100 more than that. But uh, it's a, it is a very fast-moving machine. You come in around 8 or 8.30, you have ideas to pitch jokes, you pitch those to your head writers, that gets, like, you know, and it's late-night writers, so some of our ideas are bad or not funny or you can't say them on television. And uh, those things get distilled down into a larger meeting around 9 o'clock. Um, and this is kind of across most of these late-night shows. So around 9 o'clock, you've got a meeting... Um, where then the the head writers are pitching to the host and to the rest of the show because, again, you're making that show that day. So props needs to be in that meeting. So do the talent people. So do the graphics people research. And so then you pitch around a bunch of jokes that maybe takes an hour. Now it's 10 o'clock and we've got assignments out for our game with our guest or we're doing a, a sketch or we're making a big chunk of long, long-form monologue. And so then you have from about 10 to noon to write. And so you're writing, you know, two or three minutes of comedy monologue with jokes and telling a story like I'm going to explain, I need to explain the debt ceiling deal and how it happened. uh, And I'm going to have like three minutes of monologue. Okay, two hours. And so you spend two hours writing that. You might spend some of that time like getting snacks. And uh, (laughs) because again, you have to remember like we are like writers. Yeah. And like (laughs) even in that time crunch, you're still like, like late night writers. We're kind of like, uh, I don't know what the right word is, is like. Uh, broken in our brains. <clears throat> so it's like you have two hours to write this very intense thing and it has to be done at noon and you're like, yeah, but what if I went and got M&Ms for like 10 minutes? <laughs> and then you come back and you're like, okay, cool. And then, But you, you turn it in at noon and then at noon everyone's turned in either their monologue jokes or their monologue chunks or those bits and then the whole show around lunchtime is read down so that it can be turned into one big script. Then around one or two o'clock, you do rehearsal, you go down to the stage, the, the host is there, they, they now have been busy doing a bunch of other things because hosting is learning what the guest is gonna do, figuring out things on time, saying yes and no to things, like you're running a 200 person company. Then they come back and they get to do the monologue and run down the whole script. They have notes, you implement those notes after rehearsal, you go do, a, you know, you're rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. And then around four o'clock, or five, an hour before taping, hour and a half, audience comes in, and now you're rewriting the show. So um, if you are in that last pitch of the show, the audience is already in the seats, the band is playing, and you and some other writers and the host are rewriting the show, one last pass. And someone is, some very helpful, nice producer is knocking on the door and going, you have 30 minutes, you have 25 minutes, you have 20 minutes. And you are going through it being like, we, can we fix this joke? What's a funnier city to say? Is a badger as funny as a porcupine? And you're just going through it, just tweak, 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 tweak. And then you run out of time or you finish just before and you go, okay, we're good. And then uh, it's 5.30 and you say goodbye to the host. Then they walk out and they do the show and you sigh and you go home and you get in the shower and you think, well, I've got to have three jokes for tomorrow at 8.30 a.m. And that's what it is to write late night television every day. 
And in return for doing that, uh, the AMPTP has agreed to give us the security of 13-week-at-a-time employment. So our contracts are three months, and then every three months you're let go and you find out if you come back. Uh, and our argument going into the uh, negotiations was that seems short. <laughs> because the cool thing is we actually give up a 10% discount to our pay for 13-week-at-a-time contracts. Because they're saying, we're giving you security, we're taking a discount. Our argument is, that sucks. Don't do that. And, um, and so we, but, you know, it is, it is at least three months you can be like, hey, my kid's going to be in school. I could maybe pay rent. I understand where I'm going to be for these three months. And so we went in to negotiate that essentially we wanted to do what Episodic TV had done in 2014. The terms and conditions we had in television, we wanted to put on streaming. Why? Because streaming is television. Because Late Night with Seth Meyers is shot in 30 Rock, uh, and Amber Ruffin's show is shot in 30 Rock, and they're shot in the same studio with the same cameras and the same crew on the same floor with the same cue card guy. One of those staffs has 13-week contracts and minimum pay rates. The other does not. Because on Peacock, it is apparently such a different existential show that it does not deserve basic protections. Our argument was that that had to end. Their response was to say that we would like to pay writers a day rate, one day at a time, each day being a quarter of your weekly rate. So for us, in late night, this is an existential fight. So it is not an argument about if we are going to have a 5% increase or a 7% increase. It is not an argument about how many shows in a season we get to have. It is an argument about that if we lose this fight, I cannot put my kids in school in New York. The people I am friends with will not be able to get approved for an apartment on a day rate. It means that late night writers will not be able to do late night. It means that you will have a nightmare scenario where you can hire a couple of writers to come in on Monday, write as many monologue jokes as they can, and then you let them go for the rest of the week. So for us, and I think for our fans of late night, this to me is one of the most animating things in our contract. Nowhere else in the NBA is there a group of writers who do not have minimum protections. It is something that can't be allowed to spread and can't be allowed to continue to exist because we are making the same work and we are doing the same amount of work. And boy, howdy, did a lot of these executives come out for the last six years and be like, you kept me so sane during Trump. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, I loved your jokes. Well, if you love your jokes, let me feed my kids. Yes. That wasn't two minutes. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that was great, Greg. Since you're on a roll, really quickly, we we did get to uh, we didn't get to the part. Of what can the average person or or exceptional person that doesn't happen to be in the guild do? And what, TV fans, how can they help? What can they do? I mean, donating to the fund is huge, but also um, these uh, these people, uh, executives at the top, and public perception is important because it affects stock price. And I, as a member of the negotiating committee and the guild council, can and will not tell you to subscribe or unsubscribe or do any kind of immediate financial action, but um, to tell companies at their customer service level, to tell companies with where uh, stocks are invested, to tell companies all these things that you are not cool with what's happening. I mean, the Netflix shareholders voted down executive pay this week because the Netflix executives, the top six Netflix execs came and said, hey, we want to raise, and the, the shareholders said no. To continue this wave of public sentiment that says, we, act, we like the people who are making our stuff more than we like the people who are paying for our stuff. That is important because they need to sell a product and you are the audience. So if you guys are saying no, they have nothing to sell. 
You know, some of these companies can fall back and be like, well, we sell toasters and we sell laptops. Not all of them can. They have to, they have to convince you that it's worth it. That is one thing. I, we were talking about audience a little bit. I, I want to talk about this because I think it's really important to people who also love TV. The streaming era, in many ways, has screwed you guys because it has, it has cut the audience out of the feedback loop of television. Because in a world where there are no ratings and shows are successes or failures based off what the numbers team can put out through a PR press release, in a world where you do not have the ability to permanently buy shows you love on physical media and keep them, in an era where shows are serialized to create cliffhangers, but then pulled on season two so you never get the satisfaction of knowing what happens, in this world, you guys are being cut out. And it is not working. And I can tell you the reason I know it's not working. We are going back to advertising television. <laughs> all of these companies, all of them are, are coming back and going, hey, that model we had where shows came out once a week, so people talked about it all week, and then it built buzz. And then, like, they really had to watch it, so they were willing to sit through some commercials. And then we sold the commercial space for money. But then because the shows were good, the commercials were really valuable. That's where we're going. It worked for decades, and guess what? It still works. The, the myth that you're going to sell people this like gym membership, infinite bucket of content, and we'll just keep finding new people to sign up is not financially working. We are going back to television, and we need audiences uh, to understand the power they should be regaining. When a show comes out that we watch, that everybody watches, it is a hit, whether the exec likes it or not. And because executives like money, it doesn't matter if they hate the show. Because if you guys make it a hit, someone is going to pay for it. That is where we need to go back to. We're, you know, in the push beyond this contract as we move forward to the next thing. I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting. But, <laughs> but just that as we move forward into this thing, the kinds of things that you guys, we need to push for ratings in television. We need to push for fandoms of our shows to, to demand that they are not canceled with some infinite thing. There are so many shows by people of color. There are so many shows by marginalized communities that everyone I know in that community is watching, and then they get canceled, and it's, well, no one watched it. Prove it. Show it to us. Now, now you can see why I, I, I nudged Greg to run for council back in the day. <laughs> We only have a couple minutes left. Um, that was great, great things. Zoanne, Julie, any last things you'd like to say to this incredible audience of TV fans and industry people? And by the way, I, we all want to personally thank you. Um, a lot of the events, and, and to the organizers, Caitlin, Emily, and the whole staff of ATX, a lot of events were canceled because writers weren't showing up to promote um, work because that would, you know, we're not supposed to do that. Um, and we worked with them to create this event so that we could have a platform to share with you some of what, you know, our concerns are and to help, you know, inform you. Um, but the fact that this many people showed up and that you've also been supportive of the festival despite the fact that writers haven't been as present um, is really terrific. So thank you all for that. Um, and thanks to ATX. <clears throat> so so, Anne and Julie, we've got a couple minutes left. Any, any last thoughts that you want to share with this incredible group of people in here? I think, you know, the, the lesson that we all learn as we get in our, like, Union 101 and our Writers Guild 101 is all that the Writers Guild is doing is, is negotiating for minimums and minimum protections. Your right to benefits, your right to a pension, the least amount of money that you can be paid to do this job. It is a baseline protection. On top of that, though... And this is something that falls outside of our sort of beef with leadership, uh, with the, the producers' leadership, is 
we all have it theoretically in our power as storytellers and as workers for these companies to make change from within outside of the boundaries of a strike, to fight for a bigger writer's budget so you can hire more staff writers, you can give more opportunities, to fight to get writers on the set, to fight for all those things. The burden of the success of whatever we are able to gain in this in this strike, the burden then passes on to those of us in the guild doing the job to continue to fight for those things. Because when you do have success, even though you're not getting paid for it the way you used to, you get the power, you get the confidence from the people who are deciding what your budget is, and you do have the ability to say, I need this. I need more writers of color on this staff. I need to give more opportunities to young writers, emerging writers who can't get their way in the door. I need to train my writers to be on set so that they can take my job because God, is it hard and I don't want to do it for very much longer, you know? (laughs) And I will just say to everyone in this room who either is a writer, wants to be a writer, is part of this community, or even, you know, in your day-to-day life, like, remember that we've got the power of a union fighting for our basic right to exist, but then we still have to carry that fight onwards and be advocates for each other. I was just going to say a couple things. Like, one is that, you know, Obviously, these companies have the money, but to even just put it into perspective, like some of these shows that they're doing on streaming are costing millions and millions and going over budget and all of that. And it's still many rooms and they're still not playing writer's minimum. And that is just, I can't even, it's unfathomable. And one thing that was really interesting, that something that's been just talked about is the fact that the networks with the, the structure of having the commercials and advertising is so out of place with the streamers and what they want that, you know, there's a a thought, are they going to split? Mm, Because the networks have no... They're not fighting this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when we, when we had the um, agent action, which, you know, we all fight our agents a few years ago and slowly, but surely some of the smaller agents came out, agencies came and then slowly but surely the bigger ones came and I just wonder if there's any possibility of that happening so I'm just putting that out there and just lastly as far as like what Bo was saying about what you could do if you are in LA or New York or Atlanta or whatever there are I have met many pre-WGA people out there fighting it takes two people to form a picket line so get out there be with us and we will welcome you get lots of steps And, and remember, this isn't just about Hollywood. Uh, this is a labor movement. If you're part of a union, good on you, and do everything you can to fight. Management will never grant you anything. You have to always fight for it. Always. You don't get anything by asking for it. You have to demand it. And then you have to be willing to walk the walk when you can. And if you're not part of a union, but you're in an industry or a work environment where you can organize, consider it. And there's lots of people you can talk to in your community. I'm sure many in Austin who are labor organizers. If you need any guidance on that, it doesn't, you don't have to get, it's not hard to find a good socialist, you know? Um. (laughs) And and it it does go both ways too. You, we were talking about this last night. 
Right now, IATSE and the Teamsters are on our lines with us. They are honoring our lines. They are going into their own negotiations in the next calendar year. We can't just be like, hey, thanks for not crossing our picket line. And then in a year from now, be like, oh, gee, I'm so busy. So sorry. Like, I'm busy going to my job. Like, we're going to have to pay that back and pay that forward. Um, <laughs> as you said, the Teamsters have, the Teamster leader has a tattoo of Jimmy Hoffa on her arm. They will cut us if we don't show up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just, I just want to just let me, my, I just have like a little Chris, mini Chris Kaiser speech moment uh, hey, that I, I'm required yes. to say from Nedcom. But Chris Kaiser, by the way, is, is our, he's like the Kaiser Sose. Yeah, of, he's, like, he's, he's the, the co-chair of the captain. negotiating committee. Yeah. Also, to me, he made party of five. So exactly. that means a lot to me. But the idea that um, it is not an accident that we ended up in a situation in which every single part of creative Hollywood is united in rage against the producers. That takes a unique level of disrespect of labor and of the dignity of our work. And that is not a union fight. That is a human fight. And that is why our fight is your fight. And whether you are in a union or not in a union, the biggest thing you can do is join us in that solidarity in whatever way you can. Because all of us have been in a work environment where our work is devalued and we are devalued. Where we do not have a career where we are talented and good. We are a, a cog in a machine who accomplishes a list of tasks. That is not right. It is not part of the American dream and is not a thing that can keep happening. That is why this is a wave of labor action that spreads beyond unions and beyond Hollywood. And it is a time as America for us to all join together to push back against this because if we do we can and we will win all right let's let's end this the way that we started it i want the we're gonna clap in unison we're gonna do it as a union the back row start with you do it together bring it forward next row there we go yes all the way, bring it all the way up. Yeah. Raise your fist. Thank you all so much. And I hope to see some of you out in the picket line. Thank you. Have a great festival. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com. <laughs>